sort of a way that we make special Christmas time here at Grace Baptist Church. It's a reading, it's a decorating, and I think there's cookies involved at the end. So if you don't like readings and you don't like decorating, I think we can all agree that we all like cookies, right? Okay, there we go. That's good. So that'll be there. Check your bulletin for that. Don't forget about Lottie Moon and giving to that. Information's in your bulletin there. And I'd like to invite you now as we start a Christmas series. And uh, uh, it is not a misprint in your bulletin. That is our text today. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 1. 1 Kings chapter 1. And uh, we uh, just finished the Gospel of Luke. This is the first Sunday since we finished the Gospel of Luke. And it was a very, very good book to spend two years' time in. I promise you we're not going to have a two-year Christmas series. We will have all the way up to Christmas, and probably going to have a series in the first four chapters of Genesis starting in the new year if I don't do a, a, a giving series. Uh, speaking of which, uh, let me remind you to please, as you're doing your holiday shopping and all that, don't forget to give to the Lord's work here. Uh, I know that uh, inflation and different things have been hard and difficult on budgets, but uh, please keep in mind that the Lord uses that money to keep ministries and churches going and so please sure you remember that as you give through the holiday season and every month as you budget all right so let's let's jump into this text this morning um, if I were to ask you what some of your favorite Christmas passages in the Bible would be I doubt you would pick first Kings chapter 1 but there is a tie-in I promise I will show you this momentarily here you probably think of Luke 2 and some of the other passages in the New Testament, and we'll get there. But for today, uh, let's begin here with what I would consider quite an epic introduction. So let's now turn our attention to the Scriptures. 1 Kings 1, 1 through 1-4. Now, King David was old and advanced in years. And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms, that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king, And attended to him, but the king knew her not. Amen. May God have blessing to the reading of his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. And I pray he writes his truth on all of our hearts because the grass withers, the flowers fade. Say it with me if you know it. But the word of our God endures forever. Well, as I've just stated, you know my view on the Bible. It's not just merely a piece of literature, but I do enjoy a good piece of literature. When I was in high school and in college, I took several literature classes. And one thing that you learn when you write is that, particularly if you're writing a novel or you want someone to be engaged with it is, you want the first line of that novel to grab and invite the person into the story. So you want to spend a lot of time crafting that just right to bring the audience or the reader into the storyline. Let me give you some examples from literature so you can see what I'm talking about because I think what we have in 1 Kings is something similar but let's let's talk about a few examples here. First of all, C.S. Lewis in his book The Voyager of the Dawn Treader. Let me read you the first line of the book. Here's what he writes. There was a boy called Eustace 
Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Automatically there, that kind of tells you all, almost all you need to know about the main character in that book. In addition to this, uh, who has either read the book or seen the movie A River Runs Through It? Have you ever seen that movie? Do you remember the opening line of A River Runs Through It? It says, in our family, there was no clear line between religion and fly fishing. Right there in that line, it sets you up for the main metaphor that runs throughout the whole story. Um, Lewis Eckrich, in her novel Tracks, writes this, what I would call somber, gloomy, parable imagery to open her book and sort of suck you in and hook you in. She writes the following. We started dying before the snow fell. And like the snow, we continued to fall. What's going on? What's happening there? Uh, another great one, uh, George Orwell's book, 1984. Who's read that? Was any of you required to read that in school? In George Orwell's book, 1984, do you remember the opening line? It says, it was a bright, cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. The author here is signaling something is deeply wrong for a clock to strike 13. But what is it that is off? And you'll have to turn the pages to find out. And then, of course, you knew where I was going since this is a Christmas series. Perhaps one of the masters at crafting opening lines to their novels is the great Charles Dickens, right? In his book, David Copperfield. Has anybody read David Copperfield? Opening line of David Copperfield reads this way. Whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my life or whether that station shall be held by anyone else, these pages must show. Well, you want to know. Did he turn out to be that or the villain? Another book that he wrote, A Tale of Two Cities. Anybody read that one in school? That was often assigned literary assignment. If you've never read it, I bet you've heard the opening line of A Tale of Two Cities. Does anybody know it? One one or two of you? Here, listen. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief and the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. And he goes on to this epic opening there. And then, of course, since it's Christmas time, Charles Dickens' uh, story that has been made over in film, even Bill Murray got a chance at it, right? A Christmas story, right? A Christmas carol. Everybody's familiar with that. I think the Muppets made it, right? If you've not seen the Bill Murray version, you've probably seen the Muppet version, right? Has anyone ever read it, read the opening line that Charles Dickens originally wrote? What does it say? Marley was dead to begin with. That's how the Christmas carol opens. And so you're hooked in. Why is he dead? Why is this important? What's happening here? And there it is. In a similar fashion here, the author of 1 Kings, whomever he is, is drawing us into the storyline with this first line from 1 Kings. Look what it says. Now King David was old and advanced in years. I want you to think about this for just a minute. You know, when you think of the heroes of the Old Testament, I think of Daniel and I think of David. Though he was flawed, I like to think of David this way. David was a man who could kill a lion or a bear, right? He could stave them off as a shepherd boy. He was a young man when he fought Goliath and beat him with a sling. He was agile enough in King Saul's court that when King Saul threw a javelin at him, he's able to move out of the way and dodge death there. He has joints and bones. He is a well-built man. He is 
He has red hair, right? He, he, is, a, he is someone who uh, can now outmaneuver Saul in the mountains there with his band of not-so-merry men. And he's the one who's a great general who can, who can take the city of Jerusalem, right? He's like, a, he's like a General Patton and a George Beverly Shea, like all rolled up into one person. He is the king of Israel. He is, we like to think of him as strong as the sweet psalmist who wrote so many words that have comforted us in the darkest deep pits of night of the soul. And here he is, his red hair has turned to white. His joints don't move like they used to. And he can't stay warm. Things have changed for our dear hero here, King David. And the description here sparks a discussion among the servants and the council that are here. What's their solution for this king who can't get enough blankets or cover on him to stay warm? Well, this is a problem of the flesh. Let's get a fleshly solution, right? Now, this is not the main point of the sermon today. However, comma, it is worth noting, when churches or God's people see fleshly problems and they try to answer them with fleshly solutions, that's not God-honoring. This is especially a precaution for installing leaders in a church. Men who will take the pulpit or who will serve in positions as deacons, trustees, whatever those positions may be. We should not install them merely because they have good esteem in the community or they're pretty smart and savvy business-wise. We should esteem them and place them into these positions because we believe, one, God's called them, they make a good leader, and two, because they're going to approach things not with fleshly solutions but with godly solutions. You've got to keep in mind, the Holy Spirit's not falling upon God's people yet here. This is somebody who is making a fleshly solution to a fleshly problem. And yet at the same time here, you can't help but notice, right? Let's go get him a, a pretty young woman here and put, him in, put her in bed with him, right? He's always liked women, right? Let's get him, get him a pretty young one and put, him in, put her in bed with him. That'll help him, right? That'll help him get him there. But there's a, there's a bit of a, a sharp contrast here, right? Because as we see in the latter part here of the verse, it says in verse 4, but he knew her not, so he doesn't know her in a biblical sense. I mean, here's the reality of the situation David is facing, David is now in bed most of the time, not able to keep warm. He's not strong enough to resume duties as he did before as king or as general or in any of those positions. His son should be the next, his firstborn son should be the next successor to the crown, right? But what happened to him? Well, he R-worded his sister Tamar, right? And so the second in line, Absalom, killed him. So his firstborn is dead. What happened to Absalom? He ran a rebellion in Israel and tried to take the throne from his father. One of David's uh, men killed him when his hair was stuck in a tree limb. David writes about that and how it impacted him. Uh, His thirdborn son, we don't know much about. Scripture doesn't say a whole lot about him or what happened to him. Most commentators think he probably died at a young age. And there's a fourth son here who's already kind of meeting with the officials of Judah and preparing for his coronation day to ascend to the throne. But it's not going to be the fourth born that God's going to choose, right? Later we're going to read here 
about how the prophet Nathan will go to Bathsheba, his, I guess you would say, illegitimate wife, or the wife that was secured by illegitimate means. And it will be Solomon, the most unlikely of the sons of David, who will ascend to the throne. But isn't that just like God to use the most unlikely to accomplish his will? And it will be Solomon who will lead when David finally passes away. But here he is, the Bible tells us, old and advanced in years. Now, did you know there are three other times in the scriptures where this phrase is used, old and advanced in years? And each time this line is used in scripture, what's happening is, in a, in a beautiful literary way, the author is introducing us to some sort of great shift that is happening and taking place. And the other times we see this is Abraham and Sarah. The Bible tells us that Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in years. And what happens? Do you remember? They have a son, Isaac, right? As they're old and advanced in years, well past childbearing years. And that sort of shows something incredible. Joshua is the second one. Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Bible tells us that he got up and delivered that epic speech where he told Israel, choose this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the, the Lord. And that verse, how many of y'all got that verse up in your houses? That's a popular verse that gets put up in houses even today. And that verse, that chain of verses there signal that shift. Well, that's all well and good, Pastor Travis, but uh, what's that have to do with Christmas, Right? Do you think it's odd that you would pick this passage? I mean, of all the passages to pick for Christmas time, why would you pick 1 Kings and, and David in a way? I don't like to think about him dying slowly and chilling under the blankets. And this passage here, a young virgin who literally in the Hebrew it means would sit in his lap to keep him warm. How, how is this anything to do with Christmas? Well, let's think about how the New Testament opens, shall we, for just a moment, right? Well, actually, before that, let me, let me finish David's story, and then I'll go to the New Testament. What happens when David finally dies? Solomon becomes king. And no doubt the people who had a problem with him and how he secured Bathsheba as his wife, and that problem never really left his house, by the way. It was a continual issue. Um, Solomon comes in. He does well in the beginning, right? He starts out good. But then what happens, church? He marries all kinds of different women from different cultures. The problem is not that they're from a different culture. The problem is they believe in a different God. It's not an issue of race. It's an issue of belief. And they bring in their false gods, and he allows statues and worship centers to false gods to spring up all over Jerusalem, including the Mount of Olives, a precious place that the people of Israel held. Not the Mount of Olives, but even there statues to Asherah are given. Well, perhaps not. David's son will lead us into the, into the great golden era where we'll have the final expanse of our people that were, was promised in Abraham and Jacob and all. It, it, will, it must be his grandson. Jeroboam will do it. He'll be the one that will finally expand our borders where they need to go. And Jeroboam gets into position following Solomon's death. And what does he do? Do you remember? 
He plunges the nation into civil war and splits the north and the south and they will never come back together again. And if it's not David's grandson, surely it's his great-grandson that will bring Israel back into the golden era and to the, into the place of fulfillment of God's full promises. That'll be the one. And what do we see happen? Every king that follows plunges them further away from God into idolatry. Sure, there are reprieves like Josiah here and there, but they are the exception to the kings and they are not the rule. Every king that follows is a disappointment to the nation and the fulfillment of the promises that were made. Man, Travis, you really know how to get some of the Christmas spirit, right? But we're not left there. Let's look now at the New Testament. Turn with me to how Matthew begins. The very first opening line of the Gospel of Matthew. I don't know if you've ever looked at it this way before. What does Matthew say to bring us around? Here's what he says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, comma, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Oh, remember what I said earlier? That it was Abraham is old and full of years. David is old, full of years. Then let's turn over here to Luke. We have already sort of seen as we've been in it for a long time, so I'll... Won't spend quite as much time. Look at Mark. What, what does he say here? Right? In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I am sending a messenger before your face who will prepare the way. And then we, we move on down here and talks about John the Baptist's ministry. By the way, the third place that it talks about them being old and full of years was Zechariah, John's dad, and his mother, old and full of years. John, he was old and full of years when they were given that son, signaling a shift again. And finally, Luke, well, John tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was gone. And then finally, Luke says, inasmuch... He kind of, Luke in a very scholarly, you know, formal Greek way has sort of four lines of introduction. And so he talks about Theopolis here and makes his plea with him. And then he, he opens up in verse 5 of Luke. Within the days of King of Herod, King of Judea. This is like earth shattering to Jews because think about this. It was supposed to be someone from the line of David on the throne. It was David. David's son, David's grandson in Judea, his great-grandson on down the line. Now, they all mucked it up, but they were all sitting there on the line. But here we are in the opening of the Christmas narrative, and it is King Herod, who is not even a line. He's not, not much less is he a son of David. He's not even a Jew. He's from the line of Esau. He's sitting as king of Judah. How disappointed the Jews must have been to have a pagan Sit on David's seat. No. David and his kingship, there was one enemy that he faced 
that he couldn't outrun, one enemy that he couldn't dodge the javelins from. There was one enemy that his flesh would give way to, and that was the enemy of death. But notice here, right? Luke tells us in Luke 2, if you've ever watched Charlie Brown Christmas, if you don't know it from Scripture, you probably know it from Charlie Brown, right? Uh, the, what's he tell us there? The, the great taxation, right? In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, and on it goes, right? Well, how does that have to do with the baby in Bethlehem? What does this all have to do with? I want you to think about where we started today. We started with the king who was supposed to sit on the throne forever, but who's not going to. He's going to succumb to death. He is laying in his bed. He is frail and fragile. And he's being kept warm by a virgin. And now in Luke chapter 2, we have a new king. One who, as the other authors have introduced him, is from the line of David. And this king begins, in many ways, like David ended. He is a baby who is fragile and small. And who keeps this baby warm? Who is it? It's a virgin, isn't it? But not a virgin who a beauty contest was almost held for to find the prettiest one, but one of God's choosing whose beauty is held internally, right? She may have been beautiful as well, but at least that. Except this king who has now come who starts as David ended like a bookend, who ascends not just to a, a kingly seat on earth, but past that to the right hand of God. This is the king who beat every enemy. Where David failed at the very end, he succeeded. When the time came for him to die on the cross, and lay in the tomb for three days. On the third day, he came out. The sweet psalmist of Israel of old, after three days in the tomb, I promise you, he stayed in there and is still there today. But Christ came out and conquered. You see, you can understand why Israel was groaning. You know what one of my favorite Christmas hymns is? O come, O come, Emmanuel. I like the solemnness of it, and I like the longing of it to move away from this line of kings who all they have ever done is disappoint. Right? Are you like that? Have you been in a lot of churches or around a lot of people claiming Christ, and all you found is disappointment? If you think this is a different place than every other place you've been in, i got news for you. This is a church full of sinners who more than likely will disappoint you, right? But that's okay. Because you can't look at God's people always and see God's, God clearly, can you? But praise God, there's a king born in a manger here who will go from frail like David was and being kept warm to becoming the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to being the one who sits on the right hand of the Father to make intercession for you and for I, and who will never be silenced by death like David was. And all that is required of you today is to trust Him to be your King. That's it. Because if He is your King, He is certainly 
your Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow before you. And we thank you for this text this morning. God, we, we can hear here why the great preacher and hymn writer Charles Wesley, who wrote that hymn so many years ago, he's the heavenly born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory born that men no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth and to give them second birth. Oh, praise the King who does not disappoint this morning. Our Lord, our King, our Savior, Jesus Christ. In your precious holy name we pray. Amen. This morning you've heard the gospel preached. You've heard of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And you've heard of what is required of you. Merely to repent and believe. Just to trust And let Him be your Savior. Is that you today? Are you ready to do that? You can't look. You can't look to the disappointment of others. You have to look to the only King who never disappoints. Won't you do that here as we sing? Please stand. I'll be in the back to receive you.